This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. So this one we kind of came up with on a whim there, I would say. Yeah, well, we said in our last podcast we were kind of going to get away from some of the scary, dark stuff that we've yeah. been focusing on, right? So we – actually, what we wind up focusing on, actually, there is some scary and dark stuff. So <laughs> I guess we didn't really get away from it if you really look at it. But um, we're looking at um, – Something that you know everyone's done, everyone's uh, experienced. We're going to look at the history of some of these board games that people grew up with, or often ones that people still play today. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I think like a board game is the ultimate family pastime. You know, what I mean, like the family activity. Yeah. Watch a movie the together. Activity. Even with like some of the ones we were talking about, I remember playing with my uh, degenerate um, gambling friends in high school and in college. <laughs> where we used to like just play board games for money and see who would win. Like oh, have teams yeah, and oh, see yeah. I, I never did that for money. Oh yeah, well, with them, everything was for money. That's just how it worked. But you know, see, you, you make it make it interesting, <laughs> Pete. You got to make things interesting. Yeah, no. Um, nonetheless, I do remember playing a lot of these games. We're going to talk about today. I mean, board games. Yes. Interesting yeah. enough, like when I'm I was now with, with the kids, I know that's what I'm saying. Like it's almost like every generation just passes that on to the next generation. And that's what they was, become. They become part of Americana, right? Part of our fabric, yeah, part absolutely. of our culture. These games. People know these games. Absolutely. That we're going to talk about. Um, what's also interesting is that the, the board game market considering, I mean, it's been through, think like what we're going to discuss today, board games have been around for thousands of years, but modern board games, we're probably going to concentrate mostly on the 20th century and up board games, but still these, some of these board games that came out before there was radio, before there was TV, um, you know, and then eventually you have, you know, comic books, internet, uh, so on and so forth. And there's always so much more out there to entertain you, but yet people still come back to board games. So just like now, there's a big thing when I was like kind of researching this, there's this idea of like, well, video games or board games, are video games destroying board games? And actually the answer is no, because they're no, used they're for so different st- things. Yeah. Like yeah. video games, you play mostly solitude in your room by yourself. Yeah, you play online with someone, but you're by yourself. Board games is something that still has a place. And actually... The market is to pre- predicted to go over $12 billion by 2023. Um, and they're still selling like crazy board games. So um, let's talk about some board games. I mean, hopefully for some of you guys, this will bring back some memories. Or and if not, maybe it'll you know, have you go out to the store and buy a board game because they're really not that expensive if you consider how much time you could spend playing them. Quality time with, you know, with your kids, friends, family, and so on and so forth. So um Let's let's talk about some board games. So, which one do you want to start? Well, with, Pete? I was going to actually start with like the earliest recorded board game, right? It's oh, actually it a whole board. bunch. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Egypt, actually. So, the earliest Egypt. recorded board game is believed to have been played like three thousand five hundred BC uh, in Egypt. And the reason why we know this is because there's actually hieroglyphics found, of yeah. Um, of yeah Egyptians playing board games. So they actually found some in um, like some dice and things like that in uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, right? They did. They found dice. Check out a previous podcast, by the way. Previous yes, podcast. Yes. That's in there. Plug that in there. Check the archives. Um, but yeah, a lot of tombs, um, people have actually been buried with their board games in Egyptian tombs and have been found. They, like, as, you, as you mentioned, the first real earliest gaming piece ever found was a dice. So dice have been around for a long time. We're talking thousands of years. Um and initially, the ones that were found were actually like 49 really small 
carved painted stones. Um, and they were found in like a 5,000 year old burial mound, right? In, in Turkey. Um, and then you have, I mean, they used everything Mesopotamia. Um, they used like flat sticks and different materials, stones, knuckle bones, shells, anything as dice. The six-sided dice that we're kind of using today kind of derives its roots from uh, the Roman era, but still, that's like thousands of years ago, um, which is which is insane. So, when you study this, another game that kind of comes up that was during 2000 BC. Uh, so it was the back backgammon. I'm mean, backgammon is still played today, essentially. But yeah, that's a very common. Yeah, I don't very. think I've ever played it, but I. It's always in those games. You know, you buy like the six and one games. Yes, oh, it has backgammon. You see the stores backgammon, like backgammon chess, obviously. Yeah, is, is always in there. Uh, but, but backgammon, yeah. we have to 2000 BC. Also, like became very popular Roman Empire, and then actually it became super popular in the 1960s when you you had like the event, like the modern backgammon all right and it's that there's the established international association official rules gameplay so on and so forth but it became a very popular college game in the 1960s and and it kind of became huge by like 67 there was a, a championship world championship of backgammon in uh, las vegas but a chess when it comes to chess which is considered one of the oldest games still not the oldest obviously um a lot of these different Areas they said it's the, the best-selling board game of all time, right? To this day, number one. Yeah, to this day, it's it's basically chess again because it's there's so many different versions of chess that are out there. I think recently I saw uh, before we started doing this, there was like an article about they found this like ancient chess board they think from like um like Viking times in Europe. Oh, wow. It's like this one like thing and how like valuable it is and stuff like that because it's what it's made out of and everything. And the reason why chess is so popular, they say, is just because of the endless possibilities that it has. Like all the strategy, decision-making yeah. at, at every step. Wasn't that one, um, what, the Queen's Gambit? Was that that show on Netflix? It was, yep. Yeah, I never watched it, but um, it's all about chess. I know, you know, Bobby Fischer, all that yeah. stuff. But even like the earliest game resemblance of chess was a, a game called Ludus. Uh, it was a two-player strategy game that was played during the Roman Empire. And the reason why it was so popular, specifically with adults and specifically in Roman times, is because it was accepted as a game of military tactics. I mean, that's yeah, what you think yeah. about. It. it was just thinking steps ahead. Um, like, yeah. Chess is one of those things like it only takes a few minutes to learn how to play chess, but it takes a lifetime to actually master it. So that's what yeah. it was. Like You can learn how to play it really pretty quickly. You, know, you just you have to know what, what the moves do, but they actually win in chess and actually be good at chess takes, you know. Yeah. Time. Well, interestingly enough, I learned how to play chess by teaching my son. So my dad never taught me chess. He taught my brother chess and played chess with my brother. I should take offense to that. I guess I, I wasn't well. smart enough to play chess. But, um, you know, it was one of those things when I had when I had my own sons, I said, like, there's like three things I need to teach my my sons to do. Uh, one of them was I need to teach my sons how to fish which is something my dad never took me fishing either because he like doesn't he feels bad for is the this fish. like a therapy session pete you yeah i know but i'm saying but like it's just funny because you're right you're no right? i'm cool i'm cool i love my dad you crazy but i'm just <laughs> saying like my dad's just feels bad for fish like he doesn't want anything happening to them so it's actually a nice gesture there but i wanted to teach my sons how to fish i wanted to teach them how to ride a bike and i wanted to teach them how to play chess um and i was i was able to do all three of those things which is very exciting but i know like when i was teaching my my older son how to play chess like i didn't know how to do it so like i had to teach myself to teach my son and now he kicks my butt in chess all the time like he's he's like weirdly good and he's 13 um they learn fast right and then um in 400 bc you have chinese people created their own board game uh liubo uh it actually meant like six sticks it was first like first real board game um developed by asian society 
Um, but kind of going back to, you know, because there's the Chinese checkers. These are all like different games that kind of fall under the same family as chess, you might say. Um, yeah, it's a strategy. You're moving around. and Yeah, they're like considered strategy, but also like military tactics. Yep. Uh, chess, as we know it today, actually reached the Western Europe and Russia during 900 AD. Uh, that kind of has we know it today. And by 1000, um, it basically spread like wildfire through Europe. Uh, it was a Persian form of chess. Um, it was kind of modified. by And by 1475 is where you have all the major rule changes that we basically know today, all the basic moves. Modern, the modern version for the most Exactly. Part, yeah. 1475. Um, and from that point forward, it's just skyrocketed. But board, so board games have been around forever. And there's different ones from Mesopotamia, you know, Asia, um, Egypt. Yeah. But the modern board game, the really that's what like, we're, that's we're really focusing on, more the ones that – People can probably just look in their uh, closet or look and in their basement. Them. And these are going to be like chess might be there. They might have back in some of these other ones. Um, but we're looking at really like the ones that are, you know, yeah. just everyday board games that people have played. So let's start with the one board game that pretty much everyone knows has or has played. And that would be Monopoly. Yeah, or a version of it. And like now there's so many different versions of Monopoly. There's what like the true. Marvel version, uh, Simpsons. Like you can just – it's just – constant versions of monopoly out there but well, it's all know, basically the same the same game the same idea. well the original game is called the landlord's game and it was well, a little bit you want different. to talk about it you want to talk about it yeah, so it was yeah it was delivered from um the landlord's game and it was by a individual named um lizzie uh maggie maggie and um she she's based in the united states 1903 and she was a big proponent or believed in the idea of the one tax system yep I'm sure you saw this, right? And yeah. the idea is based on six single tax theory, one tax system, a theory by Henry George, which basically only wealthy landowners paid taxes. Yeah. No one else did. So she created, and she didn't like monopolies. She didn't like private land ownership. So she um, basically created this game about it. And um, there was two set of rules in the game. One was an anti-monopolist idea, which basically everyone, some at the end, if you play the game correctly, everybody wins, right? Wealth was created, everybody wins. And then there was a monopoly or monopolist set um, in which the goal was to create monopolies and crush your opponents. And no matter how hard she tried, the first way, no one liked that way. No one liked the idea of like sharing and everyone doing well. But the second way kind of caught on. There were a lot of different versions of it out there um, that people were playing. Um, and she actually brings it, I believe, to Parker's brothers at yep. one point and just doesn't do well. They don't, they don't even want it. They're like, no, this is ridiculous. She brings it back again, I believe, in the 1930s. And um, that's when they that's when they go for it. Yeah. And they, they paid her $500 for it, for the patent, as long as they pro- they promised to also release her version of the game, the Landlord's Game. Yep. And they did, but that did wasn't really – didn't never really caught on. But the Monopoly version where you crush your opponents, and you have yep. to buy up as much land as possible, that did catch on. Yeah, because ultimately the point of the game was that like people would buy these you properties. bankrupt everybody. Yeah. yeah, and the landlords would basically their fortunes would multiply, and other players would descend into bankruptcy, and eventually the winner yeah. would be this like land baron who ended who up like owning everything. everything. Do, and yeah. she was trying to say like that's bad, and that's why you should tax all these landowners. And it kind of backfired because people are like, yeah, it's awesome to like bankrupt. Well, they want they, they like that. They like that whole idea. And this is really weird that uh, monopoly is actually a lot of countries around. Well, during that time, it was actually banned in a lot of countries. Like the Soviet Union and stuff oh, like yeah. that, Fidel Castro banned it in Cuba because they say no, it's just showing the capitalist, you know, mindset. So it's actually banned. And obviously, you know, the original version of the game uh, was based on the streets of Atlantic City, New Jersey. Yeah. So little shout out to home state right there. Yeah, the first commercial version of it was produced in 1933. Um, 
and it was for officially initially produced for like 5,000 copies. And the guy that produced it, so she actually had like a middleman because after she tried to approach them again to do it, um, you know, they Parker Brothers wouldn't take it. But so she got the second guy, like a middleman named Darrow, Charles Darrow, and he actually fronted her a lot of money to produce 5,000 copies and started selling them in like a local um, Philly department store. And that's when the Parker Brothers are like, oh, this thing's selling? Like, all right, let's do this. And by the way, Parker Brothers is like the behemoth of like American toy and game manufacturer. Um, eventually becomes Hasbro. But they bought the rights by 35. And I mean, literally Monopoly has appeared in like 40 countries within the right, so within well, Different countries have different yeah. versions of it too. I was reading about this one. This would be a pretty interesting, um, this is an interesting story that the British Secret Service in World War II actually commissioned the game and they created a special edition of the game that they would actually give through um, through fake charity organizations to prisoners of war held by the Nazis. And yeah. inside these games were actual real maps, compasses, real money, and other objects that they could use to help escape these prisoners. These weren't like the um, like uh, uh, Nazi-occupied countries. They would like give these games out. Oh, let, let the kids have this game. Let people have these games. And they would allow it. And inside was all this stuff to try to like help them escape basically a lot of times it's an interesting, interesting. little uh, interesting. story there i'm sure so uh let's move on to another uh, famous board game that has an interesting story and that would be uh life you want to talk about life i mean basically what do you got for life go ahead well, life, so, life life yeah, story so of life revolutionized it so this was like a revolutionary game um, wasn't it one i usually played that much i mean, i probably did but i'm see like my kid plays it now but i i think i've only probably played it once or twice in my life Another but, Milton, uh, uh, Milton Bradley, right? Yeah, yeah he Bradley. actually came up with it um, in 1860, their, their initial one. And he grew up, so Milton Bradley grew up as this Protestant New Englander in 19th century, right? And he was taught from a very young age that any form of game were actually sinful, like a sinful distraction. So when he became 20, like around 23, he tries to like reconcile this like cultural belief um, with a desire to actually design a board game. So the, the result of that is a checkered game of life. That was the precursor to life. And it was like a lecture on morality that's presented. Yeah, that, a lot of these games, even um, I'm sure you, I'm not getting off topic, but Shoots no, and no. Ladders was originally like a Hindu, was a what, Hindu, Buddhist, yep, was. Um, yep. uh, about basically how, um, about destiny and fate. You would just spin the wheel and wherever you would roll the dice, wherever you landed, you know, you just have to take what life would be. And that's kind of what this is too. A lot of these yeah. games were, were like morality was a major component in it. You don't think about that. Like the, our versions that we play, you know, hundred years later, yeah. but yeah, this was like, for entertainment, but like another, yeah, another yeah. thing. I was it. supposed to teach you other things too as well. Yeah. yeah. Like here, if you progress the participants, like, you know, lost and collected points by progressing through the stages of life, quote unquote. Right. But it like represented on different squares. So some squares were positive, like honesty, perseverance. Right. And then you had like, yeah vice spaces and that would bring you back like not so family friendly you know there's like one that was like suicide square it's kind of intense yeah i'm pretty sure milton bradley got rid of that one when they uh yeah they did it when they brought it back in the 50s it's not gonna have that square on there no yeah so in the 1800 early 1900 it was like the first player to reach 100 points was rewarded with a gift of happy old age but it was interesting it was all by like making the right choices in life so it was like to teach you essentially um, the game was basically the game kind of disappeared by early 1900s and then end of the century it was resurrected actually as a game of life, which is what we know today by Milton Bradley yeah, yeah. Company um, in 1959. Yeah, and it kind of made it like that nuclear family too, right? You had like the little car, you had to put like the uh, 
Oh yeah, it was a baby because it was a baby boomer thing. They at that point it yeah, was the baby boomers. Yeah, it was saying, baby you know, boomer, the, yeah. the husband, the wife, the kids, and stuff like that, and yeah, you go through life. This is kind of the thing. This is what you're supposed to do, right? Yep, yep. So like kind of going along, another America. very famous game um, that kind of comes into play here is let's do. How are we doing that? People um, definitely played, and um, another one quick, quick, quick to play. Oh, you want to do Clue? I was going to do Twister. Oh, do Twister. Twister was very controversial. They said that if well, Twister yeah, had come out, was. well, they said if Twister had come out a decade before it came out, it would not have sold because it was too like sexualized. In a well, sense. you had like, well, it came out in the sixties, right? So you had yeah. it coming out in the sixties. You had the sexual revolution, and was starting to um, really go against these like ideals of the previous generation. You always have that one generation rebels against the other in some way, and um, so the owner. Um, thought up this idea as a um, promotional idea for some of his clients, right? The customers would send in enough um, proofs of pur- purchase. Think I remember doing this when I was a kid too. You cut off like the little squares in the back. You send in, you get something else. I don't, yep. I don't really do that anymore. But it was a big thing back in, uh, I guess, the '60s, also in the '80s when we grew up. And then you see a free, a free gift in return. And one of them was a um, a full body game. I think what was it called at first? Uh, King's Footsie, right? Yep. Was it on? It was on a sheet of um, fiber bo- fiber board, right? You see what, and you'd have to see um, if it would work as a prize, and it did. Um, it decided it had potential, um, so he decided to actually sell it. And then um, I think it was pitched to Milton Bradley. It was renamed Pretzel because how you twist around and stuff like that. And then that's when it involves um, players playing their hands on a mat and different feet. And then they comes up with Twister, and it was like very popular when it first came out, but also very um, risque. It's because you had um, men and women doing this, and they were like stepping over each other and twisting, like, oh, their bodies are getting close to each other. Yep. What's going on here? And I think it actually appeared on The Tonight Show. That's what right? it, they that, said. That's what it took that's off. That's what it took right? off. Yeah, the 19, um, the original Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and um, Eva, um, Eva Gabor, which was like a major yep. you know, uh, actress at the time. They test out the game on live television, and that's what it just, it's just skyrocketed. Because they're doing, they're falling over, they're laughing and stuff like that. They're making their like, you know, that 1960s humor jokes, you know, again, which a lot of it probably wouldn't fly today. No, um, yeah. or it's kind of cringeworthy, I guess, maybe today. Yeah. But um, yeah, but the game had a lot of sk- a lot of uh, critics, um, attitudes and stuff like that. And um, but because it was so controversial, it also sold because like people were like, "Oh, I want, I want to play this this game and stuff like that." And everyone's playing Twister, and there's nothing. You just kind of play it and you fall. It's just to see who can stay, you know, not fall over. Right? That's basically how it is. You fall yeah. over and you're out. You just go again, but this is one of those games that um, a little more. I guess anyone can play it, but at this time it was more teenagers, I think, and probably young adults that were playing it. It was yep. one of those types of games. Yeah, Clue, right? Clue Cluedo, isn't it? What it was initially called? It was it was a British yeah. game. So it, basically, the great detective it, game. Exactly. Um, early 20th century, Great Britain basically loves crime stories. We have Agatha Christie, you have Sherlock Holmes. You know, there's that idea of of the detective fiction. And instead of making this as a detective fiction novel, you have this British couple, husband and wife, right? Anthony and Elva Pratt. Um, they decide to create, instead of a book, uh, essentially a board game that does the same thing. Um, so their game basically kind of centers on this idea of like this you know rural country house and it's a setting for this murder mystery which again we all play what it's, it's also, yeah it's these murder mysteries and you just gotta figure out who done it but it was like really popular because again it's, it's thinking it's not just roll the dice there's a lot more to it than that yep 
and uh, you, it, yeah. yeah, so like UK publisher actually first created the game in 1945, but it was very challenging to sell the game in the United States because Parker Brothers, um, president, right, really enjoyed playing the game and he thought it would be a hit in the United States as well. But there was a long-standing company rule that prohibited any products that related to murder. You couldn't um, talk about murder, yeah, nothing like right. that. So he's which like, ah. you could like, you could have like Monopoly, right? Which was basically right? you're forcing people into poverty. You're throwing people in jail, but it's not murder. But, yeah, right, you know, letting people starve, but it's not murder. That's it's right. Not murder. It's, ca- it's capitalism. But this one about you know what Doctor Mustard in, in the library with a with a lead pipe. No, we can't do that. <laughs> right. He finally. Um, he finally made an exception to the murder rule because what started happening is by like 48, you had other companies that started being interested in bringing it to the US and they could care less about the murder part. So Parker Brothers just pulled the trigger, no pun intended. Oh, pun intended. Who am I kidding? And they're like, mm-hmm. let's do this. And they released the first Clue game in the United States in 1949. And obviously a super popular game to this day. They have, I mean, I have Scooby-Doo Clue. I have simpsons clue there's oh, they so make many. other clues too yeah i know yeah, it's like yeah. clue junior all these games have like the junior version yeah now they have junior versions because that's how i kind of well you and i probably played that with our kids but so that's another game the one game i also you, i know you play with your sons and i play with mine is uh stratego stratego is pretty cool so sh- the game of stratego as we know it was actually created during world war ii uh trademark in 1942 by a dutch company uh, and it officially came out in the Netherlands at first before it came out in the U.S. Milton Bradley got the game in 1961, and that's when you have the pieces the way you kind of know them now. It was acquired by Hasbro in 84, but really published in the U.S. in 61 by Milton Bradley. So it's it's based on a Chinese predecessor game, which you could probably still play. Um, it was known as Animal Chess, and it's a board game that looks almost yeah. identical to Stratego. Um and then you have these like game of fighting animals, and these pieces are instead certain of certain animals could beat other animals. Yeah, exactly. Thing. Instead, of, yeah, and they all have like numbers attached to them, and basically a certain animal beats another animal, so they're not soldiers. So this game has been around for like well over a hundred years, and Stratego basically kind of borrowed that. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. From them, um, the first time it was borrowed was during it was a European game during World War One. It was a French game that came out with it, um, which is, looked very similar to Stratego because it replaced the animals with soldiers, but it was still visible, so you still saw the soldiers on the other side. Versus by 1940s, um, Stratego was created in the Netherlands in like the more today version, where you actually don't see. Um, the other side who you're attacking. Also, the first one, um, first Stratego games, even the first one that came out in the United States in 61, there were painted wood pieces. That was standard. They were not plastic. Well, it's all were wood back then. Yeah. 
the wooden chess boards and stuff like that. Well, like those types of games, you had to make it. It's like almost like it was like a centerpiece too. You know, and then it changed to plastic because it was for economic reasons. You like, know, yeah, yeah. But like when they changed like Lincoln Logs to plastic, I'm like, no, that's not 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 okay. You can still buy the wooden ones. Yeah, they, they call the original. They call the original wooden Lincoln Logs. Yeah, literally, that's what they call them now. Yeah, um, something like that. Another game that I also find interesting, cool background story. Um, Uno. I play Uno with my kids all the time. It's like oh, our, it's like go to family game. Well, that's um, one of those ones that you can just play quick to a couple hands. Literally, Uno before right? you, before they go to bed. Now they have other ones. They have like what Uno Extreme now. I have the one that I shoots that. cars at you. Do you yeah, I have, yeah, we yeah. have that one. That one's there's intense. one like Uno bombs, like Uno bomb, and it's like yeah, I think it's even more than that. It just like blows up. <laughs> yeah, the one we have that just, shoots cars just, is pretty cool. Sense of fire, bro. Like um, for all these different Unos. So the game was developed in 1971 um, by Merle Robbins in Ohio. And he is basically, he's a barber. And he kind of, you know, in between people coming in, he kind of develops this game. And he starts getting his family and friends to play it more and more and more. So then he invests $8,000 in 71 to have 5,000 copies of his board, you know, that his, uh, not, well, I guess it's a board game, but not really a board game, but to get card the game. game yeah, card, card game, yeah, card game. Um, and then officially, he just sells it at his barbershop. Like it becomes like his local business. He starts selling it really well, actually. So he gets approached. So keep in mind, Uno is sold at a barbershop. He gets approached by a guy, um, this guy Tezak. He's a funeral director at a funeral parlor. And he's like, hey, I'll buy this for you for $50,000. Um, and the guy's like, all right, let's do it. So this Tezak guy forms international games. And basically markets Uno. So it goes from a barbershop to a funeral uh, home to, to worldwide, basically. Exactly. It gets sold um, to Mattel. We've got to come up with a game. Let's come up with a board game. Seriously. History teachers talking to board games. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, right. Branding, branding. No, no. Well, it could be some form oh. of a trivia game. You never know. Well, that's speaking into trivia. That's what that's I wanted perfect. to talk that's about. That's the trivia pursuit. Well, it's tri- trivia pursuit. And this is what I was talking about earlier how. Myself and my um, friends would always play these games for money and stuff like that. This was this was our go-to with Trivia Pursuit, and we were getting these teams, and it was so much for every triangle and whoever could win first and stuff like that. This Trivia Pursuit was like you know the the older generation's game, right? Like the older kids' game or whatever. Well, they was, said right? it was like because games became very much for kids, and that's this Trivia was in the eighties. Yeah, this was in the eighties. So yeah, this is nineteen seventy nine. Eventually, like Atari, Atari, and stuff like that came out. So you had the beginning of video games, really. Yep. Um, so it was kind of like, what can we do? And the idea was these two friends, Chris Hanley and Scott Abbott, they put together this idea of a game that was basically like a trivia contest for mature players. So they picked subjects, right? Like art, history, sports, entertainment. And you had to basically see if you could knew these random, random things basically. And they, so they scoured a bunch of trivia books, which is all they did. Now, now they somewhere to go on like Google, I guess, right? Find a bunch of questions. Yeah. Like what is the um, first flavor and lifesavers candy and stuff like that? Um, how long did Yergi um, Gargan spend in space? Just random facts. Like, ones that people might know but it's just trivia that's basically what it is and it, it um started a lot of people the toy stores weren't convinced it was going to take off so they didn't really take a chance on it some did and the ones that did it sold really really fast and then it became hard to get on um, started reordering the game and by the first year they brought in over they sold over 20 million copies in its first year nuts so it kind of shows that they, you know if you you can brand stuff for a slightly older consumer that board games are not just for kids and True Pursuit took off that they've made a, you know, obviously a bunch of different versions 
of that now too. But it's just a, it's a, uh, I still like playing every once in a while. You know, get a couple people together. We don't do it for money, but we'll just mm-hmm. you know see, uh, you know, see see who gets the squares from something like that because it's it's random facts a lot of it. You know, like you even know it or you don't. And it's interesting because it was also the game itself and the premise was based off a game called Game of the World. And it was a game that was developed by Decker Brothers of Buffalo, New York in 1899. And it was basically a question answer game. It was was literally Trivial Pursuit, like created 100 years prior. And it was designed to for parents to use to with, with their children basically as an educational tool. But when it was introduced in the late seventies, early eighties, this was the first game that was kind of geared towards adults. I mean, now you have yeah, this is like adults. I remember, yeah. yeah, I remember like my parents, like when I was a kid, like playing it with like their friends. I was like, you know, oh, go to bed, and they were playing Trivial Pursuit and stuff. I hear, I'm like, oh, Trivial Pursuit. Out these random questions. Well, talk about later games. I mean, Pictionary came out in 1985. Like I, I was like Pictionary. You always play Pictionary, but I guess like okay. And pictures, draw pictures. Well, thinking of that, my son got for Christmas. Someone gave him the um, it's a new version of Pictionary where you actually just draw. You have to hook it up to your phone. I have the app on my phone, and you just take this pen. You just draw it in the sky, in the air, and then it shows up on the phone. So then people have to like what? guess it and stuff like that. So that just shows how technology what? just. So you no, know, you don't just take you know a, a pen and paper, right? Or it's like a mark on that wiper board, you know. You okay. draw it no, now. It's just draw in the air, whatever you need. And it's going to show up on your smart device. And then you just guess it that way. So it just shows, you know, how technology has evolved these games yeah. too. Yeah, I mean, the a a Monopoly now. They, have, they sell Monopoly with a credit card. Oh, it like, is a Monopoly video game. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but the, there's like a credit card instead of the money. Oh, the I'm like, card. dude, that's yeah, the fun. Yeah. The fun is the money. Yeah, the fun was getting the car. Everyone fought over the car, and then you're trying to go there and nah. play the job. But how many times did you actually finish playing Monopoly? I know it's a little off topic. Honestly, I, I don't remember last time I finished. I think play. I finished one time, and I remember winning and, like, feeling bad. <laughs> like, like, legit. Like, yeah, I just took everybody's a, money. That's a like, I, I really – I felt, like, guilty. And I was yeah. like, oh, I don't know. Like, I, I guess it kind of fit what the career I wanted to do. But I do remember just being like, oh, <laughs> I feel crazy. dirty winning this game. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a, it's a board game. Um, Pictionary, which came out in 85, actually, it was kind of like an indie game. Uh, it was like a, the, these two guys decided to design it and they created their own company. They designed the game and they actually managed to sell 6,000 copies in one year for $35 each. And this is like 1985. It was a lot of money because these guys were like making it themselves. Um, and in 2001, Pictionary was sold to Mattel. And uh, obviously available in like 45 languages now. It's, it's kind of crazy. Um, Candyland has a cool story because uh, did you see the Candyland 1948? I didn't look up Candyland. So Candyland, it was basically designed in 1948 by Eleanor Abbott. And she was recovering from polio in San Diego, California. She was in a hospital for polio um, patients. And she's older, obviously, but she's retired. She's you know, recovering from polio amongst a lot of children in this hospital. So she kind of designs this game Candyland for the kids around her. Um, and basically she made it for them, for the hospital and started testing it by the, you know, on the, the children started playing. it. I was like, the, they were the test subjects for this game in the hospital. And eventually when she is cured from polio and she gets out, she decides to take the game to Milton brother. Uh, I'm sorry, Milton Bradley company. And they buy it and they publish it in 1949 within a year of her creating it and becomes the company's biggest seller. Actually, um, around to this day, around 1 million copies of Candyland is sold every year. I do remember my 
a friend of mine had the VCR version of the Canlan. I used to love playing that. There was a VCR version. Yeah, it was a VCR version. You put it in, and they would actually you would see kind of see Canlan. It was like a guy with a blue screen behind him. It's probably you know, yeah, yeah. whatever. But it was kind of cool. I know they did make a DVD version of that later on, so it kind of shows you know as year goes, they kind of adapted with the times. I'm sure this is like the video game version. I heard they were on to make like a movie about Candyland a bunch of times. They made wow. a Battleship movie. So I'm sure they can make Well, so talk about Battleship. I mean, Battleship initially, right? That's interesting because the Battleship as we know it with like the plastic pegs and all that, that is released by Milton Bradley Company um, in 1967. But actually the origins of the Battleship game date back to World War One, And it was a pencil and paper game between two players. Uh, this is something that sailors and people in, at war, soldiers would play just with a pencil. Um, they would make a little graph on a piece of paper and they would play it. Um, and that actually is, it was when they came back, soldiers came back from World War One. various companies are like, ah, this is great. So they started selling this as pad and pencil game all through 1930s and 40s. Um, and it kind of remained just as that until Milton Bradley in 67 is like, hmm, what if we actually turn this into like a plastic board and pegs game? And that revolutionizes um, Battleship into what we have today. Um, but yeah, it was also the first interesting trivia thing. Um, it was the first board game to be produced as a video game in 1979 on the Z80 CompuColor. We should talk about like the early, you know what? We should talk about like the early computers. That could be fun. Commodore or whatever. Not, not anytime we'll go soon. For it. Future podcast. Another one that kind of popped up here when I was doing this was Connect 4. Um, which I used to love Connect 4. I, yeah. I still love Connect 4. Which it's is basically awesome. a like, extreme version of Tic-Tac-Toe. No? no Legit. Well, actually, the, like yes. But There's other like, version, I'm just saying. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. But um, it was trademarked by Milton Bradley in 1974. So Milton Bradley again. But the cool thing is, is like the rules are very simple, right? Um, but and like this, I found this an interesting tidbit. So mathematicians have worked out that the number of possible game board positions is a monumental like four. I think it was like f- four trillion some five hundred. 31 billion, 985 million, 200. It's it's a a big number. Yeah. Like it's someone sat down and figured this out. Yeah. So mathematicians, they really like connect four. Well, how about we get since. Go ahead. Go ahead. Nope. I was going to go off topic. So go ahead. Go off topic. What's yours? I was going to go to another one. Well, basically, since it's October, right? And we're going to be talking about. We have to do something like that. Yeah. We're going to have to go to a game that I'm sure everyone's played. Um, I don't know if it's a game, entertainment, whatever you want to call it, or a way to contact the dead, like some people say, right? But it's a Ouija board. They sell it in the um, the toy aisle. So Did you ever you play the Ouija board? I played. I remember board. my like. I'm sure I, I remember playing it once or twice, and I just was like, "Someone's moving it. I don't really care." And that was like kind of like the end of it. Um, I know my sister, who I'm not going to get much, but she big time believes in ghosts. So she's a big uh, believer that the Ouija board <laughs> is real and it is a way to contact um, Grandpa. So, um, okay, yeah. interesting. I mean, if, she, <laughs> if I could send her this article I just read <laughs> that is based off of 46 different studies that prove um, that it's indeed not real. So, well, no, they, and it, there's right. a bunch of precursors to it. They basically were known as um, talking boards. and um, But they do say the Ouija board is just, it, it's a game that spiritualists have like kind of taken over in their own right and kind of changed things. But, um, and there was actually talks in what, and at one point that the journals that say, you know, in the twenties and stuff, if you use a Ouija board, you're going to be possessed by evil spirits. That's um, crazy. 
But yeah. Um, but yeah, no, basically they did all this research on it, these scientists, and they basically proved that there's a lot of un unconscious muscular exertions that basically are causing the response for the movement. They've actually like recorded this and they've proved yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's like that. the I think it's idiomotor effect. Um it's basically like a way for your body to talk to itself. Um it's like an example. They said like the best example of an idiomotor effect um is basically an example of like unconscious involuntary physical movement. So it's like you're you know, if you ever experience like a sudden feeling of jerking awake from sleep, like, oh my God, I just jerked because I was falling. Yeah. Um, like the hypnic um, jerk, that's part of the idiomotor effect. Um, basically, it's just like a more abrupt version of it. But because your brain is signaling your body to move without your conscious awareness. That's basically what it is. And you're not moving. You're not consciously moving it, but it's still But moving. you are moving it. Exactly. So you, you don't know moving, you're yeah. moving it. And the thing is that the second you ask a question of the Ouija board or whatever it is, it, it basically you have an answer in your head. Like there's something that happens in your brain that imagines the answer and it starts to move your hands to that. And the fact that you have more people touching this thing, it's the same thing. Yeah. So there's more likelihood of someone is going to. They said the biggest um, way you could do this to kind of prove that it's not real um, is if they had, if you do have the participants do this with their eyes closed. You'll notice that if they all close their eyes and ask their question and someone records where the thing goes, it doesn't even go on the letters because you need to visibly see where your brain connects where, where it's going. going. Yeah. Um, so they said the easiest, simple, simple test to, to see that it's kind of not real. It's, it's, it's that one. I think people, people are going to get, we're going to get some. We are. I mean, hey, to each his own. I believe what you want to believe. <laughs> hey, it's entertainment. If that is something that you enjoy and that is something that you believe. Again. Yeah, more I'm power just, to you. Yeah, I'm just. But then just call. Studies. Call Peter Venkman and he will also come and take care of it. I know. So we actually just saw um, we just saw the second one with the kids. So the first one like a couple months ago, we just saw the second Ghostbusters. New one comes out. New one comes out. I know. It looks good. Looks good. Um, have you ever played Sorry? Um, I remember playing Sorry. My uh, my cousins were into that game when I was younger, and I that's when you like jumped on their heads, right? That was yeah. trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have that. You have to like yeah. move like three pieces. And well, again, it's teaching you. It's teaching you to be sorry, but you again, you like wanted to like do it. <laughs> like, that was the goal of the game was to like say you're sorry. I remember the commercials for it and stuff. Um, two other ones before we kind of start closing this up. Uh, one is Risk. I mean, I think we have to, especially history wise, we have to talk about Risk. So the it's game, of game Risk was actually created by a French filmmaker, a movie guy, in 1957, and he came up with a game. The French version was called The Conquest of the World, and this is, by the way, Risk is the precursor to like every strategy video game anyone's ever played. This game was published for Americans by in 1959, of course, by Parker Brothers. They called it Risk. And the idea is very simple. You compete to gain control of more territories on the open world by various means, right? And battle victories are determined by rolls of dice, so on and so forth. But it really resonated with the players and became a super best-selling game in the 60s and 70s because it was it came out during the Cold War. And it was really hostility between U.S. and Soviet Union, in this case, represented through hostility between two players trying to take over the world. So there was like a historical connotation to it. And Risk kind of was the first real strategy game that went on to influence oh, others. Yeah. And there's um, been a bunch of different versions of it, too. There's like yeah. Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. What's the one you used to play? Um, Command and Conquer or something. Like video well, that was a video game. Yeah, I used to play that a lot. When I, yeah. Yeah, that was that's good. I was, well, like, you had to, well, you had to get the resources, but you still you had to conquer things slowly and work your way through. Yeah, yeah, I remember playing that. That was your thing. 
Uh, and the yeah, last one I kind of got here. Um, I got Scrabble. I mean, Scrabble came out during the Great Depression. It was basically an out-of-work architect, right? That was kind of like, dude, I'm yeah, out of work. Great that. Depression stinks. Yeah, and he basically looked, there was already a lot of different existing ward games. He kind of just like figured out, he goes, how can I create a ward game where like I can make it like also have some strategy here because you have to think ahead a little bit and maybe some chance and luck and and he kind of combined it all together into Scrabble, um, which is crazy. So, yeah, it came out during the Great Depression. It was trademarked, though, in 1948, so well way after. Um, and that's where ultimately um, this guy uh, teams up with this other guy. And in 48, what they do is they get a deal with Macy's department stores and they start selling Scrabble as an exclusive of a Macy's department store. And whenever you make something exclusive, then people are going to want it. Like yeah, and then point. it became like huge. It was then, you know, basically. It's one of those thinking games too. Yeah. And then like these two guys were unable to meet the demand because it was so much that they signed a license agreement um, with a, like a bigger American game manufacturer. And obviously, you know, more than 100 million sets have been sold worldwide. But you alluded to this a little bit at the beginning. Um when you talk about the highest selling board games of all time. So what do you, let's, I mean, there's, let's, let's figure this out. Well, so you want, like, I, obviously chess is probably, but is, is that a board game? Like you can make those arguments. Chess, yeah, chess is, um, I'm going to just go with the top 10. How does that sound? That's, all right, that's 11, good. because I like 11. So Rummy Cube is 11. Okay. The game of life is number 10. These are highest selling board games of all time. So 10 is game of life. Nine is Candyland. Eight is Battleship. Seven is Trivia Pursuit. Six is Clue. Five is Scrabble. This one I was surprised about. Monopoly is only four. I was expecting. Well, but when you see the top three, it makes sense because the top three have been around a lot longer. Haven't and like they? you said, they always come together, right? So you have Backgammon, yeah. Checkers, and Chess. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they, these trace back. Hundreds of years, if not thousands, thousands yeah. of years to some of them. <laughs> and again, you can buy like all three of them in one set. So, I mean, again, everyone's played those games, or at least seen them or heard of them. And who, who hasn't played checkers, you know? Crazy. At some point. Crazy. So, I mean. So hopefully, you know, you guys at home, if you're listening to this, are going to go and break out some board games this weekend and can say some information about it. Next time you play True Pursuit, play it for money. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, but have fun. They're, they're fun. There's something just to, something to do. Unplug for a little bit and play some board games. There's so many like adult board games now. Strate- like strategic games. Well, there's, like, so games. there's so many. There's so many. Yeah, What's a new game? Catan or whatever. Saddles of Catan. That's yeah. Like, I saw that was that was popping up a lot. Yeah, I guess it's like a Dungeons popular, and Dragons. Yeah. I don't know things like that. Uh, oh, Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, that could probably be a podcast all on its own. I remember the game I used to like. I remember seeing – I saw that Dave & Buster's recently when I went. They have a giant version of it, uh, Perfection. Okay. I remember Perfection. You had to fit all yep. the things in. But it has like a giant version. You have to do it. Yeah. Oh, cool. we also didn't mention um, – what do you call it? Uh, operation. That was a layout. Operation. Guess who? There's a whole bunch. But, but yeah, also- said, I mean, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get mail about people saying, hey, you didn't mention this game. We're only mentioning a couple of the ones and ones that have been around for yeah, a long the time. Top, the top ones. Whichever can fit into our, uh, our our time frame here. But you know, like in the 80s, you remember how we talked about in a podcast episode about cereal? They did the same thing with board games. There was a Pac-Man oh, yeah, board game. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, I had a I had a Pac-Man board game. I had an Indiana Jones uh, board game. I had a Ninja Turtle board game. Ninja Turtle board game was like the best one. Like a seesaw. You had like these things to to fight Shredder. It was great. I mean, yeah, RoboCop, all those games. And that's and Star Wars. I I mean, they all you like if you just use not YouTube. What am I saying? If you eBay, just like think of an '80s pop thing and write board game behind it. Highly likely, it existed. Oh yeah, there's going to be some sort of version of it. Yeah, out there, and they're all like the same game. You know, it was just yeah, it's the same game. It's the same game. Crazy cards that tell you to do something, or they're just so complicated, kids can't figure out how to play it anyway. It's not as fun as a. It's not as fun as the artwork on the box. It is nuts. Got unplug. Unplug. That's right. Well, anyway, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in once more for a little less serious episode. But we like to kind of change it up once in a while. So with that in mind, if you guys need to find us, contact us, email us. Um, you could always find us at historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com and or anywhere else on social media. Um, I do. It seems like people tend to email us and or leave us um, messages on Facebook and stuff. So please, we do welcome those with suggestions. We do have like a little queue and we keep on putting all these suggestions in there. And, you know, once in a while you will you will probably see or somewhere down the line uh, with that in mind. Thank you so much, guys, and uh, see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.